Well, you're joining us today as we start in on a brand new series called The Kingdom. The Kingdom. And actually, I want to start today by talking about a kingdom, um, about the inauguration of a king. Now, how many of you, quick show of hands, how many of you have heard of a lady by the name of Queen Elizabeth? Anybody kids learn about her in school? Yes. That is not who I want to talk about today because I said I want to talk about the inauguration of a king and she's not a king, she's a queen. Um, but I want to talk and go back a little bit further. I want to talk about Queen Elizabeth's great-grandfather. Does anybody know who that is? King George, not King Elizabeth, no, close. King George the Fourth. King George the Fourth. Now, the reason I want to talk about him is because he threw such a lavish party for himself on his inauguration or coronation day. When I talk about inauguration, it's the ushering in of something. And in his inauguration, in the ushering in of his kingdom, he spared absolutely no expense. Um, it was in 1821, on July 19, um, that when ordinary George became King George IV. And he gave the term pop and circumstance a whole new meaning. He was coronated in Westminster Abbey. It's still here today. And he ordered temporary scaffolding in the abbey to allow for 5,000 guests that could attend. More than tripled the amount that were there for his father, King George III. He had a triumphal ark built specifically for, for his procession. Because throughout history, triumphal arcs have been always associated with power and inauguration. So he had this built for himself on this day alone. And he had more than 700 people take part in the procession to inaugurate him as king. His outfit alone cost 24,000 British pounds. And again, this is in 1831 times. 24,000. I don't have an outfit that costs more than 10,000. So that's like extravagant and crazy. <laughs> but it included a red velvet robe that was 27 feet long and carried by eight people behind him wherever he went that day. I don't know how many of you have a 27-foot-long red robe that is carried by you. Maybe your kids do that for you. Some of you dads and moms. I don't know. But that is a long robe. Now, take all of these costs, the costs of everything from his jewelry, uh, his crown, which would cost 50,000 pounds alone on his head, the uniforms for everybody on Inauguration Day, the robes, the banquet that he held later, and the coronation itself, the whole day cost, to get this, in 1821 dollars, it cost 238,000 British pounds, more than three times the cost of any other coronation in history. That equates to today with inflation, a couple hundred years, this and that, it's about 1.2 billion British pounds today. That is an expensive coronation, isn't it? Now, think about this. Coronations, inaugurations, ushering in of new kingdoms and queens and kings and royalty has always been associated with elegance and expense. Maybe not as much as King George IV, but they've always been associated with like lavishness and, and uh, elegance. Disney understands this connection as well, and that's why we see most royalty have riches and elegance associated with them. Kids, you've watched a few Disney movies, I imagine. Adults, you have too. I want you to tell me who these people are as they come on screen, all right? Think of these kings, queens, princesses. Who's on the screen right now? Nobody. Nobody. All right, perfect. Good one. Okay, who is Because coming up? Who is this coming up here? This is none other than, <laughs> drum roll please. 
All right, we have a lot of Disney um, princesses and kings and queens. Um, for instance, uh, you know the movie Frozen. Who's on Frozen? Tell me, shout it out. Anna and Elsa, exactly. What about the girl who loses her uh, slipper um, at the ball? Cinderella, thank you. Yes, what about the girl that goes to sleep for a very long time after pricking her needle? Sleeping Beauty, what's the princess's name? Aurora. Aurora. Have you ever noticed when Princess Aurora is sleeping, she sleeps for I don't know how long, but she still has a jewel in her hair, and her hair is like perfect? There's no bedhead at all. She has beautiful, I'm jealous of her hair. Let me, I'll tell you that right now. It's beautiful and it's perfect. She has wonderful hair. Um, and then what about the girl um, who gets on the magic carpet that goes around the palace and sings? Jasmine, man, you guys are good. That's a throwback. Um, I haven't seen that one for a while, but you're good. And who's her boyfriend? Aladdin. Aladdin, yes. You see, royalty, kingdoms, kings, princesses are always associated with majesty, with beauty, with elegance, and with greater things about them. Now, with all of that said, I want to turn our attention to another coronation, another inauguration of a king. This is in the book of John. And we read this. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, O hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. See, this is ultimate mockery. Flogging was a form of torture that would be often enough on its own to kill somebody. Flogging was a time when they, they wrapped um, leather straps together, often with broken glass on them, and they would whip an individual. Um, and it was obviously meant as a torture device to cause incredible pain, which killed people long before they were crucified. A crown of thorns, it tells us here in the book of John, was, was twisted together, a crown of thorns, and it says placed on the head of Jesus. And it wasn't just gently placed on, it was shoved on, causing blood to run down his face. Jesus was slapped, Jesus was beaten. We've read earlier in the last number of months in the book of Luke, how when Jesus went in his ministry, crowds followed him everywhere. He healed people, he raised people from the dead, he taught, and these crowds followed him. And now, as he's whipped and beaten and a crown of thorns is on his head, everyone deserts him. And then, after all of this, the Roman Emperor Pilate announces Jesus' kingship. Listen to this. With all of this going on and this purple robe now on and blood coming down his face, he pushes him in front of the people who are watching this and he says, Now here, here is your king. See, this is the coronation of another king, friends. And this is the ushering in of a new kingdom. And even though it doesn't come with the pomp and the circumstance, the diamonds, the gold, the pearls, or the cost of King George IV's, it comes with stripes on his back, the crown of thorns and a purple robe, and the very majesty of God. Scholar N.T. Wright says this. He says, if you look at this man hanging on a cross, you will see the living Loving, bruised, and bleeding God. Do we see him as this today? I think this is the question we need to ask. Do we see him as this today? Do we see him as God? 
Because many people see Jesus as a lot of other things. A good and moral teacher. A healer. He did good things on this earth. He brought goodness and morality to us. But is he God? Do we see him as the living, loving, bruised, and bleeding God? See, Jesus didn't come just to give a nice message to be kind to one another. He came to usher in a whole new kingdom. You see, God has come. The king has come to set us free, to heal us, to pour his love into our lives. And he will do this through the stripes on his own back and the thorn upon his own head. See, this is the ultimate sacrifice, friends, that someone, someone would die in our place. A few years ago, my friend uh, George Kulin, he went to, I went to college with him. He wrote a book. Um, it's called Big Breath In. Um, it's a journey for him um, through his journey with what's called cystic fibrosis. Cystic fibrosis, if you don't know, is a, is a disease. It's a horrible disease that affects your lungs, and it affects the chance and the and ability for you to breathe. And what it does is it actually slowly turns your lungs to stone. As you gasp for breath and get all that gross mucus and gunk out of there, you lose that ability with cystic fibrosis over the years for that to happen until eventually you, you will very possibly drown to death by your own um, mucus in you. The only chance for something new is to have a, of a lung transplant. And this is what George writes about in his book. And he writes with vulnerability. And he writes this about, he said that he waited. He was eventually put on a transplant list uh, because his lungs were getting so bad. He knew the only chance for him to have life again was to get another new set of lungs. He said it literally gave him a second life that he got them. That his dying body was regenerated and that he could breathe again. But he says this in his book. He says, it's hard for me to fathom this opportunity for new life. To breathe in, to taste life to its full. But it is equally hard to fathom that for me to have new life, that someone had to die. Someone else had to take their final breath on this earth so that I could take a new one. George is alive today. George has new lungs in him, and he loves telling this story. And he knows just how grateful he is for new life and for this person who had to die in order for him to receive the lungs. See, this, this is the reality of the cross. That Jesus breathed his last on a cross one day in the year 33. So that our brokenness, our sin, could have a way of atonement. That something could be made right and that we could have new life and new hope. That we could have forgiveness and freedom. See, if that not had been enough, three days later, the gospel writer tells us this. Not only did Jesus die a death on a cross and breathe his last, but three days later, something happened to change history forever. Jesus did not stay dead. In fact, the king rose from the tomb. They tell us that the king is not buried at a site that we can go to and honor him at a grave as we can with maybe our loved ones. Because with Jesus, there is no grave and there is no burial plot on earth. The king is very much alive today. The king is alive and this is the message of Easter. I love this uh, quote by Pastor Greg Gilbert. He says something so good. He says, Christians aren't making a religious claim when they say that Jesus rose from the grave. They're making a historical one. They're saying that this thing 
this rising from the dead happened just as surely and really as it happened that Julius Caesar became emperor of Rome. You see, this is the message of Easter. That Jesus didn't stay dead, that he rose from the grave. And that the tomb is empty today. Three days after Jesus died, two women ran to the grave with spices to, to make things smell a little bit better and to honor Jesus. But instead they found the whole place abandoned. And they remembered at that point, Jesus told them, he said, I will die, but three days later, I will live again. The king is alive, and this is the message of Easter. This is the ushering in of a new kingdom. A kingdom where grace replaces religion. A kingdom where hope replaces despair. A kingdom where joy replaces sorrow, and that death would actually be swallowed up by victory. I know this sounds crazy, and in fact, it is. That Jesus would die on a cross but be raised three days later, it is a historical claim by Christians today. It is a claim that the Bible makes as well and that hinges everything Christianity on. A Jesus follower in the Bible named Paul says this. He says, actually, you know what? If Christ had not been raised, then our preaching, in other words, our preaching of a risen Christ is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Later on, he says, if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And if, Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people to be most pitied. See, as grandiose and expensive and lavish as King George IV's coronation was, 238,000 British pounds, Less than nine years after King George IV's coronation, the people gathered again to honor him, but this time at his funeral. Nine years after this lavish celebration, nine years after the ushering in of his kingdom, there is now a place on earth that you can go to and think about and honor King George IV. But for Jesus, even in his humble coronation and to be introduced as king, King Jesus ushered in a kingdom now where there is no place where we can go on earth to see him because he is more alive than he's ever been today, friends. And he invites us to follow him, to exchange our brokenness for his perfection and his goodness. It's called grace. That we don't have to run and run and try to be good people in order to earn God's love and at the end of the day to cross our fingers and hope for the best. But that if we believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, that if we want him to be our king, that he says, I will come. I will be your king and I am a good king because I am ushering in a new kingdom. And as you're here this morning, um, I want to just say your kids are amazing, by the way. They're listening so well or coloring so well. Um, but I just want to say we are so welcome again that you are here. And as we start this series called The Kingdom, we're going to be talking for the next number of weeks about what it means to have Jesus' kingdom here on earth. That yes, we have our governments and we respect and follow them, but what does it mean that Jesus' kingdom has come and is coming on earth today? What does it mean to follow Jesus as king? And I don't know where you might be on this spiritual journey or what you think of Jesus or who God is or the cross and the empty grave and all of this, but we invite you to come as we seek together. We are a bunch of everyday um, people who gather who figure out life together and figure out what it means to follow Jesus. 
And so we invite you to come Sundays at 10 and join us here as we um, enjoy a lot of good coffee and singing and, uh, and studying together. Um, let's pray and we'll sing in response. Father, thank you that the message of Easter is not the ushering in of a lavish kingdom, an expensive one, but rather it's the ushering in of a kingdom of an empty grave, of a humble king who died on a cross so that we may have life. And God, as much as we hope in things in this world, God, thank you that our hope can be in you today, that you are a good king who loves us, who died on a cross and rose from the dead because of extravagant love for us, your people. And so we love you, Jesus. Thank you that you love us. Thank you for the gift of Easter. Thank you that we can celebrate an empty tomb today. And thank you that you are our our good king who has come into reign in this world forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.